This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, March 15th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. How will the negotiations over a new North American free trade agreement be held up, altered, or simply destroyed by the Trump tariffs on steel and aluminum? Cato's Simon Lester and Inu Monik joined me yesterday for a live discussion for an edition of Cato Connects. What specifically has the president pledged to do? On the tariffs, uh, President Trump has said uh, we are going to impose tariffs on steel and aluminum, steel at 25 percent, aluminum at 10 percent. We're missing a lot of important details, though, uh, like which countries these apply to and which products they apply to because some uh, particular products could be excluded from it. So what we know now is that Canada and Mexico have been excluded. There are close security partners. We're negotiating NAFTA with them. All the other countries are supposed to come to the United States and try to uh, negotiate an exemption for themselves. And they have until March 23rd to kind of make their case. There's a lot of uncertainty right now as to what uh, President Trump and the uh, the trade team at, at USTR are going to be asking for. There's some speculation out there, but we really don't know. So the next nine days is going to kind of be a mad dash to figure out who these tariffs actually apply to. Um, And at that point, we'll have a much better sense of what the impact will be. It's easy to say tariffs are bad, but how bad exactly? And you can't really measure it until you know uh, who who exactly they're going to apply to. All right. So, uh, Inu, with respect to NAFTA, the president has pledged, uh, you know, the tariffs are going to be in place a long time. He's tied it to NAFTA. And it seems like the fact that Mexico and Canada are exempted from these tariffs uh, may very well be temporary. Yeah, that's uh, something that seems like might be at issue here. Uh, He did suggest that essentially, you know, the negotiation of NAFTA would be something that he'd be looking at to see whether or not the tariffs would be reimposed uh, in particular. So I'm not quite sure whether that will happen or not. Um, Canada and Mexico have been very clear that they don't think that the steel tariffs should be tied to the NAFTA negotiations, and that will be absolutely fine to negotiate them on their own simply because they're not actually related issues, uh, particularly because these are about national security. Uh, we have some data here from the, the Commerce Department on on steel uh, and where the U.S. gets its steel. Uh, number one, of course, on that list is Canada. And then if you look at the uh, the chart here, uh, it goes to uh, Brazil, South Korea, Mexico, Russia, Turkey, Japan, Taiwan, Germany, India, and then China is d- doesn't even merit uh, an appearance uh, in the bulk of that uh, chart. And it was at 2% of steel that the United States gets from China. But, it's, but these tariffs are supposed to be punishing China in a way. It has been said, President Trump has said that there's been talk that are supposed to punish China, and you're pointing out what everyone else has pointed out. These tariffs won't punish China. Uh, there may be Chinese protectionist practices that, that we would like to go after in some way. These tariffs don't do that. And it was kind of surprising uh, to me. You know, I've been waiting and watching to see what President Trump's next move on trade was going to be. And I thought, well, it's going to be going after China. You've got kind of a consensus on that. Uh, our trading partners agree. Members of Congress ag- agree. Um, but somehow these national security tariffs um, kind of slipped in there. Uh, somebody was able to kind of move them ahead in the line. And I think this is, I think 
some people in the Trump administration maybe realized this was a mistake. Uh, they qu hadn't quite expected the pushback they're getting. It'll be interesting to see. We're hearing that there's going to be announcements coming on China soon. Um, maybe that can be used to soften the, these national security tariffs and make members of Congress and our trading partners a little happier. Can't we all agree to do something about China, which is something we can talk about later if you want, um, rather than impose these uh, you know, tariffs that undermine the world trading system and which our own Defense Department doesn't think have much merit? All right. Question here from Salvatore. Uh, the question is uh, on Twitter. He asks, what do you think of POTUS suggesting he wouldn't impose tariffs on countries that would renegotiate, quote, better trade deals, like how he suggested uh, in a tweet about Australia? Do you think he uh, threatens with tariffs as some sort of strategy to obtain, quote, fairer trade deals? Thank you. Thanks, Salvatore, for the question. I think it's certainly possible this is the negotiating strategy generally by the president. Um, whether or not this is something that is going to happen and prompt uh, other countries coming to the table is actually quite questionable. We have trade deals with a lot of these countries. Whether they're going to go sit down and renegotiate, I'm not quite sure. Uh, we have a lot on the table right now, and NAFTA is taking up a lot of time for USTR. So I'm not sure whether they have the capacity to negotiate new trade deals with every single other country that these tariffs are going to be imposed on. You're talking about bilateral yes. trade deals? Now, now, explain the difference there because I think this is it's an important distinction when we're talking about uh, trade deals. Why, why favor a certain kind of trade deal over another with respect to whether there are multiple countries or just two countries involved? Yeah, so the president has basically showed his preference for negotiating bilateral trade deals, which is basically just the U.S. negotiating with one other country. But there is another way to do it, which is multilateral, and that requires you to sit down with all the other countries. So you go through the WTO and you can negotiate a reduction in tariffs across the board with everybody. Now, he thinks that it's better to do it bilaterally because you have more leverage. So you can kind of pressure that country. But he's argued that if you have a multilateral negotiation, basically you sort of get chipped away by all the countries and get negotiated down. That's not really what happens uh, in these situations. And in fact, a multilateral trade deal is much better because everybody's tariffs get lowered, and so everyone can benefit from it, even the United States. Aren't those kind of, Simon Lester, aren't those deals pretty uh, complicated, the multilateral deals in terms of their rounds of negotiations about trade and things like that? Are they generally better, or can we say with certainty that they are or are not? The economics are certainly better if you can get it done. But as you point out, it, it's gotten very hard to get it done. We went through a number of rounds of these multilateral negotiations, um, the last one, last major one being the Uruguay round completed in 1994. Since then, we haven't had much luck. There have been a lot of holdouts. There are there are governments who are members of the World Trade Organization who are reluctant to negotiate uh, much. You know, India is often pointed to as an example, um, but also the U.S. and the EU not willing to give up their farm subsidies. So, so it's hard to get these deals as much as you know we and economists would prefer them, and that's why we end up with these bilateral deals because well, it's easier to get done. It's just fewer complications. You can pick out a particular trading partner who's very eager. Um, you can also tie it to foreign policy issues. And so I think one of the reasons that the U.S. government has turned to these bilateral deals is because they can they can favor their friends. And so we have a bilateral trade deal with Australia, but not with New Zealand because Australia supports us more on foreign policy issues. So that's that's the practical political reason why we were there. Um, you know, it, it's it's less it, it's worse in terms of economics, but you know sometimes we can't always get what we want. All right, now NAFTA was an example of a multilateral trade deal, although there's just one additional country uh, in the negotiation.
negotiating uh, process for NAFTA, and th those negotiations went on for years. They started in the mid mid to late eighties. Is that right? I think they they took a couple years in, in the mid to late eighties. That was a simpler time. We weren't covering as many issues. Uh, these deals didn't quite get the the press they do today. You could kind of do things behind the scenes a little more. You know, now everybody knows everything immediately. Things get leaked. It gets much more controversial. So uh, it, it's certainly true, though. And I think NAFTA is an example of you know when you have multiple countries, um, it, it, things are going to take more time. But it's just the benefits are greater. And so sometimes it's worth it. Sometimes it's worth it to spend that time. I mean, having an integrated North American economy. That's a pretty big, pretty big achievement. Um, and so, you know, my personal view is it was worth the effort. You just kind of have to make to make the decision on a case by case basis. Is it really worth trying to get three or ten or a hundred countries together? Do you, do you really have a chance? You don't want to waste all your time on something that's not going to go anywhere. So you have to sort of make a, a good, you know, estimation in advance of whether this has a chance to succeed. All right. Uh, if you have questions for Simon Lester and Inu Monik here talking about trade, the Trump tariffs, and the NAFTA negotiations that are currently underway, you can tweet those using the hashtag CatoConnects. You can uh, tag me if you like, C.O. Brown, and uh, we'll try to get to as many of your questions as we can over the course of the next half hour or so. But uh, here is uh, the president talking about uh, trade, about tariffs, about uh, NAFTA here, uh, I believe last week. It'll be 25% for steel. It'll be 10% for aluminum. And it'll be for a long period of time. I'll have a right to go up or down, depending on the country. And I'll have a right to drop out countries or add countries. We just want fairness. But as an example, with uh, Mexico and Canada, we're going to be throwing NAFTA into the loop. We're negotiating NAFTA right now. I think we're doing quite well. It was always my feeling that I would terminate NAFTA or renegotiate it, one or the other. I guess renegotiating would be easier. But we'll be uh, perhaps coming up with a deal on NAFTA fairly soon, or we will terminate NAFTA and we'll start all over again. Where did 10% and 25% come from? Do you know? Is I mean, is there are there any documents that say this is really the right level that we should impose it's, on it's, tariffs? It's not entirely random. There was a Commerce Department investigation um, that, that made several suggestions for what the president could do. There were three options. One of them was um, a global tariff on steel and aluminum. And I think this, the tariff they suggested was 24% on steel. And I, I, I forget what it was on aluminum. It might have been 10%. But basically, Trump just kind of rounded up, or people say, President Trump rounded up to a, you know, a, a rounder number. 25 sounds better than 24. So there, you know, it came from the Commerce Department. There's no calculation as how they got it. You know, maybe they just made it up as well. But so Trump's taking what the Commerce Department told him, making it a nice round number that he thought sounded nice and going with it. There's not a lot of science to this. I think your, your question implies that, and you are right. Okay. All right. Uh, here's a question from uh, Twitter from Finn Reynolds. Given the president's recent aggressive actions on trade, do you expect the next round of NAFTA talks to feature a stronger push by the U.S. on poison pill proposals like restrictive rules of origin? How would that play out at this stage of the negotiations? 
So right now we're at round eight, which is coming up next. And so far, things have been going pretty well with NAFTA. In the seventh round, they closed three more chapters, and the tone at the end uh, in the press conference was very positive. So I actually think that the momentum for NAFTA is really good and positive, and I don't think that the current talk is actually going to scuffle that too much uh, because the negotiators really have their mind focused on getting this deal done. Ambassador Lighthizer himself said, that essentially they need to get this done fast. And bogging this down with really pushing much harder on the poison pills at this stage doesn't really make much sense if they really want to conclude it within their timeline. All right. Now, uh, related to that, uh, and Simon, you and I had discussed this uh, earlier, which is when you're trying to renegotiate an, uh, an agreement that exists like NAFTA among the three countries, there may be things that one country wants that cannot be delivered by as a matter of domestic politics in those countries. Can you unpack that a little bit? Well, I think that goes both ways. Uh, part of that is the poison pills that we just heard to. The U.S. is asking for things like the the agreement has to uh, – it will end in five years unless the parties agree to renew it. And that's just something that, that they, nobody on, on any of the sides is going to agree to. Um, but then there are other things. So, for example, in um, Canada is famous for its restrictions on, on dairy imports. And the U.S., and I think rightly, is pushing uh, pushing Canada to, to open up a bit, you know, uh, you know give, let – you know, Maybe we can't get full access to your market, but give us something. And this is just an area where you have to recognize the political realities. It's easy to sit here as a free trader and say all trades should be free, um, but we know that there are constituencies who will push back hard against that, and you just can't achieve that overnight sometimes. So that's where I think ho hopefully the Trump administration negotiators at least are, are realistic about this and are saying, all right, look, here's what we want, but here's realistically what we can get. You know, here's We can't ask Canada and Mexico to give up something – that w that they can't sell to their own people, um, because then the deal just dies. Uh, you know, it, they'll, you know the, the leaders of the you know the Canadian uh, government could get voted out of office if they come back with a deal that's too bad. So, so I, I think that there there has to be some political realism here and. I, I know that the negotiators are experienced, and you know we hear a lot of rhetoric about the U.S. saying we need to have this and this. But hopefully, behind the scenes, they're, they're sort of you know checking off. Well, this is what we really think we can get, and we're going to ask for more than we expect, um, just to, as a negotiating tool. But um, there, there's a package of concessions that everyone will be happy with at the end of the day. That's hopefully that's where we can get. All right. So, um, with respect to uh, NAFTA. Uh, or not, I guess not NAFTA, but in response to the tariffs that have been Im imposed, the two items that I've heard most about are Harley-Davidson motorcycles, Paul Ryan, and Kentucky bourbon, Mitch McConnell. And so it, it seems like it could be much broader, of course, but uh, how realistic is it that we would expect very pointed tariffs on, let's say, Louisville Slugger baseball bats or uh, you know, dairy products from Wisconsin? This is kind of how tariff retaliation works, you know. So if you if a country has violated uh, trade rules and you you want to get them to stop, uh, everyone's gotten pretty good at figuring out how to really poke in the important people there. So you're like, all right, well, who's the Senate Majority Leader? Who's the House Speaker? 
what do they produce in their district? Let's target that. And the U.S. will do the same thing. Uh, you know, if they're trying to get at the Europeans for not opening up their uh, beef market to, to, to U.S. producers, well, then we then we put tariffs on Roquefort cheese from, from France. Which you know, literally happened. Which literally happened. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think countries have, have learned this. Uh, you know, this is the way to really get under somebody's skin to get them to do what you want. And it's it's within the rules. I mean, it's not ideal, but it's just, you know, this, this, is, this is the tool that, you know, there's no world government to fine countries for disobeying trade rules. Instead, it's just, uh, you know, countries can take matters to their own hands with authorization from the, the WTO to retaliate in a way to induce others to comply with their obligations. So it's frustrating for consumers. It's frustrating for producers. If it leads to more free trade in the long run, it's probably beneficial overall. Uh, but a lot of people uh, get caught in the middle of it. And uh, that's it's frustrating and unfortunate for them, those who do. If you have questions for Enu Monik or Simon Lester uh, talking about the Trump tariffs and the NAFTA negotiations, you can tweet those using the hashtag CatoConnects. You can also comment on our Facebook live feed that's going on uh, right now. We'll try to get to as many of those questions as we can over uh, the next few minutes that we have here. We have a question from uh, Jesse McCurry on Facebook Live. Uh, Jesse asks, what risk is there for retaliation on U.S. soybeans or is there any particular reason to expect that soybeans would be singled out as a product? Uh, they certainly could be singled out. Uh, the EU list that we've seen so far includes a really wide range of products, and there are some agricultural products that could come into play. But at the end of the day, we're not going to know until it finally happens. Uh, but that certainly could be something because uh, the United States is a top soybean exporter. Uh, the degree to which that goes into the EU is questionable, but for China, this is a big issue. So China could certainly use this as a form of retaliation. Okay. So what do you expect for the for the next round of negotiations? How are these how have these tariffs actually changed what we expect from uh, the next round of NAFTA discussions? First of all, where are we with NAFTA discussions and and how how might these tariffs change them? Yeah, so the NAFTA discussions right now are on track, I would say, uh, considering the length it takes to negotiate most free trade agreements with the United States. So right now, we just finished round seven, and they've concluded six of the 30 chapters that they need to complete. So right now, it may not sound like a big number, but they've only had seven rounds. And so they just got into the process of, this is what we want, and now we need to sit down with actual proposals and negotiate the details. So the technical details are being worked out at the moment. The really hard stuff, so like dispute settlement, investor state dispute settlement, all that kind of stuff is going to be way at the end. So like rules of origin, the sticking point where you basically had a proposal where the U.S. has asked for 50 percent U.S. content to be included in autos. Well, that's going to come down to the wire. So that's going to be like the last round of negotiations where they can start making concessions. So right now I would say we're doing pretty well and we have a lot more to go. This might not get done by the summer, but it might get done eventually. All right. So what are we expected that what what is the what are the technical requirements of bringing that deal back from these negotiations and having all three countries adopt what's there? So right now we have a bit of a timeline because of trade promotion authority, which is going to expire. So the president has to request an extension of TPA at the end of April. And then once he does that, then they're on track to continue negotiations. It doesn't seem like Congress is going to hold up renewing TPA. They have to actually take an active step to prevent it from being renewed. Uh, and I don't think in this environment, Congress is going to stop the president from negotiating a trade agreement um, just because they're worried about 
about other protectionist uh, you know, policies that could come into play. So I think in that sense, TPA will get renewed. But the timeline is a little messy because we have midterm elections coming up. But then also in Mexico, you have the presidential elections in July. So if we get a change in government in Mexico, we may not have a government that really wants to work with the president on seeing the same way and what he sees in NAFTA. And so we might have more opposition in Mexico, but a partner in Canada. So this is going to make things a little tricky. And those chapters, uh, the other chapters will not be concluded by... Uh, that the time of the election. Definitely not. I think we'll have some progress, but the hardest stuff is definitely not going to be done by then. Okay. If you have questions for Inu Monik or Simon Lester, the Trump tariffs, NAFTA, uh, and uh, how those relate, where you can tweet those at us using the hashtag Cato Connects. You can also comment on our Facebook live feed that's uh, going on uh, right now. So um, I guess what are your expectations for the length of time that these tariffs are going to be imposed. The president promises a long time, but that can be a defensive crouch or a negotiating point. Well, so for the next nine days, as I, as I mentioned, we're going to have uh, all of our trading partners who, who ship steel and aluminum to the U.S. Uh, trying to negotiate an exemption, and we'll see who gets out of it. Um, it may be that many of them do, and we're, we're left with maybe just China and Russia. Um, and then the question is, well, you know, what do they think of this? How, what is their approach to it? The EU has said, we're going to retaliate right away. We're going to impose tariffs on you. China and Russia have been quieter about it. I, I don't know exactly what their, their take is going to be. Um, China in the past has done things um, when they wanted to retaliate, such as uh, we're going to uh, you know, carry out more anti-dumping, countervailing duty investigations against you. Maybe that's not as uh, – it, it's, it's not going to you – know, Maybe that wouldn't convince the U.S. to stop the tariffs. So if that, in that sense, if China and the U.S. just agree to impose a few more tariffs on each other, well, then maybe they just last for a while. You know, as we were talking about, China doesn't export much steel to the U.S., so maybe they don't care that much. So, so it depends on who they're applied to. If they if they apply these tariffs to the EU, I think the EU will retaliate pretty quickly, and then I think. That will trigger, I think, some kind of resolution of this. Um, uh, whereas, like, like I said, if it, it ends up just being China and some smaller exporters, uh, you know, maybe maybe they do last a while because there's not that big an impact, and people don't, you know, neither, neither side feels the economic pain enough to 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 want to deal with it. So, I, again, I think this next nine days of negotiating something is going to be crucial to figure out what exactly the tariffs are, how harmful they are to uh, various different U.S. Pr- producers. You know, if you have Boeing um, going to the, the the Trump administration saying, "Hey, cut this out. This is hurting us." Uh, maybe then they're more likely to those tariffs are more likely to disappear. Um, so, it, but it, it depends on the exact, you know, precise extent of the of the tariffs. Okay, uh, Betsy McCaughey of the New York Post writes a, a piece uh, there yesterday. She writes, "The critics are wrong about Trump's tariffs," and she says, "Just just to bring this back to core." arguments here. She writes, tariffs will shift demand to domestic steel, enabling plants to operate closer to capacity. That will bring down the unit price of American-made steel, not raise it. That's Econ 101. I don't know what econ that is. I'm not sure it's 101, though. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think you know, you you can do things to advantage uh, U.S. producers. You can impose tariffs to advantage U.S. producers of steel and aluminum. That that's true, but it's at the expense of a whole lot of other producers. Um, can it bring the costs of, of U.S. producers down? I, I'm very skeptical of it. I, I you know, economists look at these things and they see you know. 
here's the cost. We can identify that. Can you have sort of economies of scale, you know, in theory at, to some extent? As if international price pressure right. is not enough to get yeah. American steel manufacturers to lower their prices. That's right. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea that suddenly U.S. producers are going to be producing more efficiently um, after experiencing higher costs, you know, it, you know, when you describe it, I mean, it sounds like kind of a fantasy. You know, you you can, in theory, come up with some convoluted reasoning about how this could help efficiency to some level. But but no, I mean, that's extremely unlikely. We've had we've it, this isn't a new thing. Tariffs aren't some new invention. We have a lot of experience with them. Um, we can evaluate how they've worked in the past, and when economists look at how they've worked in the past. They don't see that. Um, what they see is higher costs uh, for the producers and higher prices that result. And you can argue about how much the higher price, you know, how much higher the price will be. That's fine. But the idea that prices are going to go down or not go up, it, that's not been the experience with tariffs in the past. All right. So uh, Larry Kudlow has been announced as, uh, I guess, the head of the National Economic Council, which is uh, – different than the Council of Economic Advisors. Um, and uh, he was just quoted, I see this here, was quoted as saying uh, recently, in my mind, Peter Navarro is an equal, no matter what the org chart says. For all the, the people who've fallen out of the Trump administration, the what you guys call the pre protectionist triumvirate, they're not, they haven't gone anywhere. They're all still there. I mean, I guess, right, I guess you're talking about Wilbur Ross and Peter Navarro and Bob Lighthizer. Um, but, you know, so what we've seen is for the past year, Gary Cohn has had that position, director of National Economic Council, and has done a pretty good job, it sounds like, you know, keeping those economic nationalist impulses in check. So he's now left, partly because he was upset about the, the steel and aluminum tariffs. Larry Kudlow sounds like he's going to be stepping into that role. He's going to play the Gary Cohn role. Um, you can imagine, and I don't, I don't know him personally, but I, I hear a lot about him. You can imagine he would do pretty good in that role. Uh, he gets along well with Trump. Trump respects him. Uh, he'll be able to make the case strongly uh, as to why tariffs are just ordinary taxes that are as bad as all other taxes, and, and, and we should avoid them. So. I was so, I was heartened by the announcement that, that Cutlow uh, is going to be getting this role. There was some talk that maybe Peter Navarro uh, would have that role. I think that would be more of a problem. So, you know, I, I, yeah, I, th I think that having Larry Cutlow in that role is a good sign that we are not going off the rails and that we'll have the the, the, the same debate that w that's been going on within the Trump administration for the past year will continue to go on, and that will keep us sort of in the center of this, not wildly protectionist, certainly not wildly free trade, but maybe kind of you know a mix of both. Uh, we have a question from Ryan on Twitter. Ryan, thank you for the question. Uh, why are these Section 232 tariffs that are based on national security interests being used as leverage for trade, NAFTA negotiation, and used to address imbalances with China? Why aren't other existing mechanisms being pursued? ADD, CVD, uh, anti-dumping duties, countervailing duties. Why aren't other other means being used? Well, I can answer part of that question on why they're being used. Um, they kind of shouldn't be used if they're going to be, you know, using the national security justification. Because right now, making the leverage argument that if you negotiate a better trade agreement and we'll not get rid of these tariffs kind of undermines the whole basis of using Section 232, which is about eminent uh, national security threat. So essentially, saying that, you know, you can be exempted if you somehow get a better deal on 
automobiles or on agricultural products doesn't really seem to make sense for a national security standpoint. So there should be other means that could be used, uh, but the president's choosing to use Section 232 because it allows him to impose duties right away. And there, there's no, then there's there seems to be no controlling legal authority to borrow a phrase over what constitutes a national security threat with respect to trade. That's right. There, there haven't been a lot of cases. This, this provision hasn't been used much, and so it hasn't been litigated much. And I think that's part of why the Trump administration likes it. It's, well, we've got complete and total discretion here to do whatever we want. Now, with regard to anti-dumping countervailing duties, we do a lot of that uh, already, so m maybe there's not much more to do. And also, it comes with a lot of constraints. This looks unconstrained, um, and so you can see why it would be appealing to them, to the Trump administration. They believe that uh, you know the threat of imposing tariffs gives them leverage to open up foreign markets. I don't know if they're right, but they, but they believe it. And so, you know, Section 232 was sort of an obvious place to look to get that leverage. If you invoke this and write up a report saying national security is at issue, you can kind of do whatever you want. That's very appealing to them. Um, maybe they didn't recognize the, the pushback they were going to get. You know, I saw, you know, some White House document where they said, hey, nobody got that upset about the, the washing machine and solar panel tariffs that were imposed under Section 201. They're not going to get that upset about Section 232. But it's a very different thing. You know, the, the anti-dumping, countervailing duty safeguards, that's been used for a long time by everybody. The system accepts that. The system understands that th these things are going to happen. Section 232 in national security is a new thing. It's pushing the boundaries. And, well, I, they're learning it. You know, they're, 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 I think they, there, are people, there are people there who maybe understand better than they did that this is, this is going to be controversial. Um, maybe they'll learn their lesson and, and move on to another, you know, kind of, uh, you know, trade law provision that, that will be more successful and less controversial. Uh, we'll see. I, I don't know if, you know, Trump is famous for, you know, caving in in the face of uh, opposition, um, but it's possible we can find a way to talk him out of this one and move on to something that might be more productive and less controversial. All right. Uh, another question Question from uh, Finn Reynolds. Finn, thank you. Uh, if the U.S. seeks to re-enter the Trans-Pacific Partnership, perhaps in a future administration, uh, what will be the major barriers in doing so? Well, the other countries that have now signed the TPP as of last week have left it pretty much open for the U.S. to join. They've suspended some provisions that the U.S. had pushed for originally, and those can be basically uh, put back into place uh, once the U.S. decides it wants to join again. So I don't think the barriers are too high. A lot of it will depend on diplomacy and how the U.S. deals with reaching out to these partners and bridging the gap uh, again from what's happened with this current administration. All right. Uh, question from Liz Amil. Uh, sorry about that, Liz. Uh, thank you for the question. Are still steel mills even globally competitive? If they can't immediately meet all domestic needs, what happens? The U.S. steel mills. I mean, I, I think some of the I, U.S. steel you know, is traditionally focused on the U.S. market. Other industries have globalized, and companies have tried to set up production structures where they take advantage of you know uh, labor here and capital here, and you know, try to compete you know the most efficient way possible on a global basis. The U.S. steel industry hasn't done that so much. They've kind of focused on the U.S. market and focused on keeping foreign products out. There are some steel companies, as I understand it, who are somewhat competitive. Um, there are others who are less so. Uh, you know, so these tariffs were on steel and aluminum, just to give you an example from aluminum. Um, to make the, the final aluminum product, to smelt the aluminum, I'm not an expert here, I hope I'm not saying that too wrong, um, 
you basically it requires a lot of electricity, and the cheaper the better. So there are places like Canada, uh, Norway, Iceland who have cheap hydroelectric power, geothermal power, and they're just always going to be better at producing aluminum than the United States. There's just we really can't be competitive with them. Uh, so so I think the answer is that. In some cases, there's some you know steel companies who have innovated a bit and are somewhat competitive, but they don't generally try to you know compete in export markets. Um, so I, I think, on balance, you know the, the U.S. steel industry and aluminum industry really haven't done what say the auto industry has done, which is let's try to compete in global markets on the most uh, efficient way possible. And I think that's hurt them, and that's why they're kind of that's that's why their strategy has been well, let's just keep the foreign products out. Inu Monik is a visiting scholar at the Cato Institute, and Simon Lester is a trade policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 